Uh, I'm sitting down today, if that's all right, uh, but I'm doing it on purpose. Um, we're, we're going through a series called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus sits down on the side of a hill and he teaches what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And really what it was is he was teaching the way to live in the kingdom on earth, the kingdom of heaven on earth. This is one of the most radical, countercultural, um, religion demolishing, kingdom building sermons that you will ever hear or read or learn from. And it has taken us months to walk through it. We are coming to the tail end. Jesus is about to start his conclusion. And uh, today, we're going to get into point one of the wrap-up. He's a really good preacher. He's got multiple points in his conclusion, like any other preacher, right? Like when, when Jesus says, in conclusion, he's still got like five sermons to go. So keep coming. This, the Sermon on the Mount is not over. But this sermon is so dynamic and full and rich that it is taking us months to walk through. Uh, but it really is shaping and changing our lives, and I have already begun to notice how it's shaping and framing a lot of the culture of our church as we are asking a lot of questions about who we are as a people right now in 2021. If you haven't noticed, the world has changed around you in the last 18 months, and so we as a church and as people of God, we are asking questions like, how in the world are we supposed to do this thing called Christian living? And, and Jesus goes, funny you should ask, I preached about that. I actually talked about that. And so that's what this series is all about. Now, as Jesus is beginning to end his Sermon on the Mount, he makes a very specific comment that is actually intended to be a summary statement of the entire sermon that we have heard so far. And that one statement, that one verse as we see it, is our key text for today. So if you haven't already opened your Bible to the Sermon on the Mount, if you don't know where that is, we're reading it out of Matthew chapter 7, and our key text today is verse 12. Let me read for you what Jesus says as a summary statement. And the reason we know this is a summary statement, by the way, is because the first word here is the word therefore. Uh, I was taught in Bible college that when you see the word therefore in a scripture, you always ask, what is therefore? Therefore, So it's an invitation to review, to look back and go, why is he saying this? In other words, he's saying, in light of everything I've said so far, it's really important that you hear the next thing I'm about to say. Therefore, this is a summary statement. And so in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus says, Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them, for this is the law of and the prophets. Now, I am pretty certain that that sounds familiar to you, right? I, I am fairly sure that you have heard this statement before. In fact, you probably know it as the golden rule, right? This is the golden rule. That's the title of my message today, the golden rule. Jesus is, by the way, I threw that one out for Kyle. Kyle is the person responsible for making sure our sermons get put on our podcast on YouTube. And he texts me every Sunday faithfully to ask me, hey, what was the title of your message? So I'm telling you, Kyle, right now it's called the golden rule. All right. It was also helpful for you, though, I think. The title of my message today is the golden rule. And, and, and I think not only is this just a familiar aphorism for us, 
it would have actually been familiar for them as well, for the original audience that Jesus was speaking to. Uh, it, it wouldn't have exactly been brand new, and yet it still, go figure, like Jesus, would have been a radical pre presentation on an old idea. In fact, there was an old Jewish story that was popular during Jesus' day, and the story goes something like this. There was a young man who, uh, some, in some versions of this story, uh, he's referred to as a heathen, right? He's, he's not a, a follower of Judaism. He's a heathen. And he walks up to a rabbi, a popular rabbi at the time named Shammai, and he says something like this, teach me the Torah, which is the law of God, teach me the Torah while I stand here on one foot. And, and what he's saying is, teach me the Torah in the briefest possible terms. Right? So Rabbi Shammai, who happened to be working on building a house at the moment when this young man comes to him, takes a two-by-four and smacks him over the head with it. And so the young man leaves, not converted to the way. And he finds another popular rabbi of the day. This rabbi's name was Hillel. He goes to Rabbi Hillel and he says, Rabbi Hillel, teach me the Torah while I stand here on one foot. And Rabbi Hillel looks at this young man, and he replies like this, That which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. That is the whole Torah, and the rest is commentary. Now, go and learn it. That's pretty good, right? That which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. That's the whole law of God. The rest of it's just commentary. Go and learn that. And the story goes that the young man was so impressed by this short answer that he converted and he began to follow Rabbi Hillel for the rest of his life. Now, this was a popular teaching during Jesus' day. So with that in mind, knowing that this was the teaching, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. Now, listen to what Jesus says as he summarizes the Sermon on the Mount. One more time, he says, therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them, for this is the law and the prophets. So Jesus is definitely making a reference back to this popular teaching. And everybody on the mountain that day listening to him was like, oh, I see what you did there. Right? You're talking about that Shammai Hillel story, aren't you? But there was something a little bit different about the way Jesus talked about this. In fact, just like he has done so many other times during his teaching, and specifically multiple times during the Sermon on the Mount, he's sitting on the side of a mountain, and he's sitting down to express that he, as a rabbi and as a teacher, he is, he's got authority on the subject at hand, and he says, with all authority that I've got, I'm taking this popular teaching, and I'm going to flip it on its head. Because Hillel says, don't do what's hateful to you. Don't do that to your neighbor. And Jesus said, do what you would love your neighbor to do. Take that and do it to them. He totally flipped the whole thing on his head, which was exactly what Jesus' MO was in, on many occasions. But remember, Jesus isn't just trying to flip a popular teaching on its head just for shock value. He's also summarizing the entire sermon so far. So I thought it would be a good idea if I re-preach every sermon I've preached for the last like 30 weeks right now. Are you ready? No, I'm kidding. But what I will do for you is I will summarize the themes 
of the Sermon on the Mount. Are you ready? Okay, so he begins by making eight statements about the kind of person God would call blessed. We call these the Beatitudes, and they go something like this. Jesus says that God would call this kind of person blessed, the poor in spirit, the people who mourn, the humble, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, people who are merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted. These eight kinds of people, God says, those kinds of people are blessed. Then he calls his followers salt and light. He says, you guys are supposed to actually change the world, right? We're, we're, not, we're not here just to receive God's presence, but you're actually supposed to share it and make a difference in the world in ways that bring God's glory to the world. Next, because he's not that, like he's just getting started. Then he moves on and he affirms that he isn't here to abolish the law, but actually to fulfill the law of God, which is a really important hinge point for the entire sermon because the next six statements he makes are all designed to deconstruct and reconstruct really bad teaching of the law and share better teaching of the law. He wasn't coming to say the law is dumb, we're over it, you know, God's grown, grown up or moved on or changed or anything like that, right? If you need a reminder about that, we have that posted on the back door, uh, over the back doors of our room. Every time you walk out, you can be reminded. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ, who's the Son of God, who also is God himself, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus didn't say, come to say that God had changed his mind. He was actually in these six points saying, you've been misunderstanding what God was saying all along. So in six points, he says, murder doesn't begin with murdering someone. It begins in your heart. He says adultery, by the way, also begins in the heart. Uh, third thing that he says is he's deconstructing and reconstructing teaching is he's saying divorce is strongly discouraged except under specific circumstances. You'll remember we just thought it would be a great idea to talk about that one on Mother's Day. Right? It worked out, though. Uh, the fourth thing that Jesus says here is he deconstructs and reconstructs some good and bad teaching is he says, let your yes mean yes. In other words, don't make oaths or promises that you don't intend to keep, not only to God, but also to your fellow people. Uh, the fifth thing that he says is go the extra mile. Give radically more than what is asked or required. Be a radically generous person. And then he also says, love everyone, not just your neighbor, not just your friends, but love even the people you consider your enemies. You remember in that sermon that we found out that God would actually look at the people you call enemies and say, I died for them. You don't get to call them an enemy. They're also your neighbor, right? So after these corrections, then Jesus uh, kind of begins to cherry pick specific topics. Now he's actually got a, it's not just random cherry picking, he's got a, an idea in mind, but, but he, he pulls out these specific topics. He talks about giving and generosity. He talks about prayer, about fasting, about how you should view your possessions or your money, uh, what you should do with anxiety. He says, never judge people. And then he comes back around to prayer again, almost as if he thinks that prayer is an important thing. And he says, you know, seek and ask and knock and do that with persistence. That's what we actually talked about last week. Can I make a confession to you that when I started reading last week's, or started writing last week's sermon, I actually intended to end that sermon on this verse. Because in a lot of your translations, it'll actually include this verse that we're studying today right in there with ask, seek, and knock. As like that's the, the, the summary of just that one point. But we have to draw it out 
on its own and realize that what Jesus was actually doing was summarizing the entire teaching. And even bigger than that, he was summarizing not just the 32 or 23 rather teachings that he had uh, that he had made in the Sermon on the Mount so far, but he was teaching and summarizing the entire way that we engage the kingdom of God. And so with that in mind, having reviewed the Sermon on the Mount, listen one more time to the way Jesus summarizes the entire 23-point sermon. Therefore, whatever you want others to do to you, also do the same for them. For this is the law and the prophets. Jesus took the entire teaching and summarizes it down into one point. I remember Jan Spencer, uh, the senior pastor at this church, when I was coming up in ministry, and he would have me preach on some Wednesday nights, uh, and, and he would always ask to view my notes before I was going to preach, and he would, he would ask me this one question. He would say, what's your sentence? And at first, the first time he ever asked me that question, I was like, what do you mean, what's my sentence? And he said, oh, well, if you can't tell me the entire point and purpose of your sermon in one sentence, then you don't know what you're preaching yet. So he would challenge me to have one sentence. So we go to Jesus, the best teacher in all of history, and we say, Jesus, you've got 23 points in this sermon. What's your sentence? Oh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's probably the way you've memorized this verse. Ironically, no English translation quotes it exactly like that, but that's the way we all have learned it. See, he flips Hillel's teaching on its head, and it was so effective when he did this that Hillel's very popular teaching, don't do what is hateful and evil for you, don't do that to your neighbor, it was so effective and radical and controversial and wild that Jesus flipped it on its head that people actually began to refer to Hillel's teaching as the silver rule just so that they could call Jesus' teaching the golden rule. Because they wanted to express how what Jesus said was weightier and of more earthly value and more spiritual value than anything we had ever heard before. And so having put that in its context of why Jesus chose to say it like this, I'd like to give you or to offer for you three thoughts on why I believe the golden rule is the perfect way to sum up this 23-point teaching as Jesus introduces his outro to the Sermon on the Mount in that way. The, the first reason I think that the golden rule is the perfect way to sum up this teaching is because the golden rule requires personal reflection. If you've paid attention to any of the sermons during this series, you know that this is a deeply introspective invitation. That Jesus is challenging us before we think about anybody else to make sure we look in the mirror. In fact, you could say that the Sermon on the Mount is a mirror designed to show you how you are measuring up to the standard of God and the standard of his kingdom in the world. But the question then is, how do you want to be treated? By the way, if you, if you offer a shallow answer to that question, I think you could actually see how the golden rule becomes either a weapon or at the very least problematic very quickly, right? Like you might say, I really would like to be validated. And maybe you're the kind of person who likes to be validated by people making commentary and compliments on your personal appearance, 
Maybe you're the kind of person who uh, goes to the gym quite a bit and you really feel validated when people make comments about how good you look, right? And so if that was you, hypothetically, you might therefore conclude that the golden rule is encouraging you to go around and make comments on everyone else's physical appearance. Because after all, do unto others as you would like them to do unto you. Which might sound great until you land in the HR department at work because you made a comment about literally everyone's physical appearance and not literally everyone wants to be treated that way. Right? So maybe Jesus is talking about something deeper than the compliments we would like to receive or the way we would like to be given gifts or the chores that we want people to do for our selves. Jesus is not offering a simple means to an end where that end is, I get to be treated how I like because I treated you the way that I thought that you would treat me if I treated you this way. You see how quickly the golden rule falls apart if we use it for our self-serving, and yet it is an invitation to look Inward, Jesus is actually inviting us to think about everything we have heard him say so far. And after all of that, are you really still interested in your personal comfort? After everything that you've heard Jesus say about the way he classifies blessed people, after you've heard all of the ways he's deconstructed and reconstructed good teaching about what it looks like to live in the kingdom on earth? Are you really so interested in getting your way? I think Jesus is hoping that when we hear this summary of the Sermon on the Mount, that we would not immediately think about our own comfort. The Sermon on the Mount is designed to humble you. The Sermon on the Mount is designed to help you realize how much you desperately need God and how little you actually deserve His grace and how amazing it is that despite the fact that you are woefully undeserving, He gives you His love and His grace and His forgiveness and His presence and His Holy Spirit despite the fact that you are a big, fat failure at living up to His perfect standard. The Sermon on the Mount is a mirror where you go, oh, that's what I look like compared to perfection. And then you go, oh, thank you, God, that you give me your grace anyway. At, at your core, when you, are, when you are humble before God and you receive the invitation that the golden rule begins with, which would be to think about how you really want to be treated, and you come humbly before the God who, who teaches you the way to live as blessed and, and a way to honor God in, in the world and in his kingdom. What do you really want people to do when they engage with you? I, I think at your core, you want to be seen and you want to be heard. You want people to tell you that you matter and that your presence is valuable in the world. You want people to ask you how you're doing without you having to tell them. You want people to offer to help you when they see that you're in need without you having to beg for help. You want people, if you're really humble before God, you actually want people to lovingly, lovingly, point out your sin and redirect you to Jesus when you fall short of his glorious, perfect standard. 
See, the truth is, though, that, that, that in the deepest places of our hearts, I, I think what we actually struggle with is not believing that we deserve good treatment. When you really stand before God, most Christians actually walk around with a complex that says, I don't deserve anything. And maybe that is theologically true. Yeah, you don't. But we forget to tack on the secondary, more true, foundational, fundamental truth of the kingdom of heaven. Is that you don't deserve anything. But because Jesus was sent as a sign of God's love, you get to inherit everything. All of his kingdom. It says in scripture that it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of heaven. So this is an invitation to hear how God actually views us. Not to self-deprecate, not to beat ourselves up, not to become the spiritual worm who is undeserving and therefore cannot receive any blessings. But to come to terms with the idea that we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. To come to terms with the idea and the reality that we are chosen and adopted by God himself. To come to terms with the reality that we are loved with a radical and sacrificial love. And there's nothing you can do to change the way God feels about you. The Sermon on the Mount is a mirror. It shows us our shortcomings, but then it assures us that God radically loves us anyway. The golden rule, then, is an invitation to reflect on the value of human life, beginning with your own and then extending outward toward others. And so that's the second observation I would share with you, is that the golden rule not only requires internal reflection, but it also requires you to consider other people. In fact, some of the language could be said that the golden rule requires us to think of others first. And that might sound contradictory to everything I've said in point number one, how can I think of others first if I'm supposed to first think of myself? Maybe a better word would be that you would think of others preferentially. That having reflected on who you are in light of how humble and how nothing you are in comparison to God, and yet how amazing it is that he loves you anyway, that you would then be able to think preferentially having reflected on yourself and your relationship with God, you can give preferential treatment to others. Because didn't Jesus give preferential treatment to us even though we didn't deserve it? So Jesus is deeply interested in in our being introspective, on the inner journey, right? We call this spiritual formation, that we would look inward and allow Jesus to meet us and mold us in those places in our lives into his image. But this is not his intention for us to stay there, that we also need to learn to consider others. And this is not an isolated idea. This, is, this idea doesn't only show up in this one verse or in this one idea we call the golden rule. Let me give you a couple of examples. In other places in Scripture, for example, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather the interests of others. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24 says, No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. 
And John 15, 12 through 13 says, this is Jesus saying, this is my command to you. Love one another as I have loved you. And then he paints a picture of what that love looks like. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friend. Wow. Now, if you're living and breathing, you haven't gone so far as to literally lay down your life for your friend. But but do you have a, a, a system or a rhythm or a culture of your life where you'd be willing to lay down something of yourself so that somebody else can receive a blessing? This is the heart of what we at Life Church call the good neighbor policy. That we would be willing to put somebody else's comfort before we pursue our own comfort, right? And that demonstrates itself in all kinds of ways. But this is this is what we call the good neighbor policy. It's what Jesus calls being a follower of the way of Jesus. If you've heard all that Jesus has said and you still want to put yourself first, you haven't been paying attention. You haven't really heard. You haven't really been listening to the heart. Jesus makes it pretty clear. Loving God looks like loving other people. Period. It looks like loving other people. If you can't say that you love other people, please stop trying to say that you love God. Jesus is talking about his core values for community, right? Like we have some core values here at, the, at this church. For example, one of the things we say at Life Church is we all belong, right? We all belong. Wherever you're at on your journey towards or with Jesus, you get to belong here. And, and we all belong whether or not we're on campus or online. We have a community of people who belong. Amen? All right, so that's one of our core values here. Jesus is talking about his core values. If we live this way that Jesus teaches us, then I believe, and I think Jesus is teaching, that we will naturally treat others the way we would like to be treated. And that, in turn, would actually answer the question of how do I make sure my needs get met? We don't ever have to worry about that because if you live in the context of community according to the golden rule and I'm busy meeting Teresa's needs and treating her as I would wish to be treated, then Teresa or somebody else in my community will also treat me according to the golden rule. Without me having to go, Kyle, it'd be really nice if you would finally treat me the way I would like to be treated, Kyle. You see how Jesus is actually saying, don't make this a policy, make it a culture. Just make this a part of your lifestyle. Oh, and by the way, if you're so wrapped up in, but how do I get my physical needs met, you've still missed the point. Because Jesus isn't interested first in your physical needs, he wants to make sure that your spiritual needs are met. Right? And if all of the things of this world get taken away and nobody ever meets a physical need of mine again, don't I already, in having a relationship with Jesus, have more than I deserve and more than I could ever need? Right? So in God's kingdom, our needs are met when we seek first the kingdom of heaven. That's a promise, by the way, from Scripture. When we seek first the kingdom of heaven, but then also as we care for the needs of others, as we serve others, as we treat others the way we wish we could be treated. 
But then there's another point to be made here. It was, this would be the third point of the day, is that the golden rule also requires action. Jesus did not stop at telling us, think nice thoughts about people the way you wish they would think about you. He, he didn't stop at saying, feel the way that you wish others would feel about you. He said, treat others the way you would have them treat you. Now, by, by the way, there should be a, a, a subtext here that, that I, I almost wish Jesus would say, treat others the way you would have them treat you and never hold anyone to the expectation that they would treat you the way you've treated them. Right? Yeah. Because you wouldn't, by the way, th- he doesn't need to say that because you can kind of think, if you think deeply enough about this, you wouldn't, you wouldn't hold an expectation over somebody else. And so you would, you would not hold that expectation. over. Y- you get it. John Mark Comer put it this way, a general rule of how to relate to other people is to imagine yourself in another person's skin for a moment. Think about how they would have, uh, how you would have them treat you if you were them. And then turn the tables and take the initiative to treat them that way. Put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Think about the way you would love for them to treat you and then turn the tables and before they get a chance, treat them that way. If you're in a conflict, man, I, I would love if they would just forgive me and extend love. Oh, so turn the tables and forgive and extend love before they ever get a chance. The key word in John Mark Comer's description of what this looks like in our life is initiative. Jesus is not allowing us to stop short at feelings and thoughts. He is requiring us to take action. And not action in response to somebody else's action. Action in response, well, maybe you could say action in response to Jesus' action. That he loved you, so you go love them. Right? Now imagine for a second how taking action like this could change your relationships. How it might have an impact on a marriage. I cannot begin to tell you the number of times I have heard a spouse on one side of a marriage say, I will do X right behavior when my spouse first does Y right behavior. The golden rule could absolutely resolve that, right? Well, stop waiting for so-and-so to do the right thing. You do the right thing, right? Imagine how that could help in our friendships or in our parenting, right? Imagine how this might help in our engagement with people who think or believe or voted differently than us. Instead of waiting for them to behave correctly, quotey fingers because of the insane arrogance when we believe that we have figured out correct behavior. Instead of waiting for other people to, be, to behave correctly before we treat them correctly, we extend the same grace and kindness that you hope to receive from them in the moments when you fail. And if you think that you have never failed in a relationship, just go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount because you haven't even begun to learn yet. Jesus is inviting us to treat people the way he treats you. You suck at being perfect. The Sermon on the Mount is a mirror. 
Do you measure up to the standard of Jesus? No. And Jesus loves you anyway. Treat your neighbor the way Jesus treats you, right? It's, it, it's a gift. The golden rule, the, or the key rather is the, to the golden rule is not simply that you think or that you feel it, but that you do it. And I think this is where so many of us, myself included, fall short of the standard of the golden rule. Because then I, I can have all kinds of conversations about how I should treat so-and-so differently. I know, God, I, I know, I know. I, I should stop saying that thing about them. But did you hear what they said? Or, or, or I can privately say, God, I, I will stop saying the thing about them and then stop saying the thing about them, but not actually go do the work of loving and reconciling. The golden rule requires action, and I think this is why it takes an entire Sunday and probably the entirety of our lives, not just to hear a verse, but to actually put this in action would be one of the most challenging things that we could do as disciples. This is why Jesus would say 23 points of, an, of a countercultural sermon. Let me summarize it all in this way. Whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. Exclamation mark. This is the whole law and the prophets. Everything that you've ever heard about the way to engage God. You want to summarize it? Go ahead, stand on one leg. I will summarize the entire way to live in the kingdom before you get tired of standing on one. Hop if you want. The way you want to be treated, treat other people that way first. In saying this, he flips the popular teaching on its head. The popular teaching is don't do bad things to people and do everything you can to be treated well. And Jesus says, regardless of how people have treated you, you treat them the way I have treated you. Now just imagine for a second, as simple as this statement is, what a profound impact this would have on, in, on your life, in your marriage, in the place where you work, in your neighborhood with your children, with your friends. Imagine how God might use you to be a blessing to others if this was the way you engage the world. By the way, uh, we're going to wrap up in just a second, but, but I, I want to tell you that the golden rule is not without its critics. I, I know it seems impenetrable, but, but in studying for this sermon, I actually found and read several articles talking about the problem with the golden rule. I, I read one article where the, the subtitle of the, goal, of the article was, the golden rule is the worst idea ever. They said things like, this rule doesn't work because people don't all want to be treated the same way. I read one guy's article that says, this rule... This rule requires no empathy because it only encourages you to think of yourself. And in reading this, the irony of that particular article, by the way, was at the bottom, there was a note, like an update note. Have you ever read an article that like a year later, the author's like, oh, I, I misquoted something, right? So this guy comes back a year later and writes an update. And he says, I, I didn't actually do a lot of reading before writing this article, but I discovered that several people have also written about this thing. So I feel so great in being validated in, in my thoughts that the golden rule is the worst idea ever. 
And isn't it ironic how you can read a thing and go, I don't think you read the textbook you're referring to. And then at the end of the article, the author goes, by the way, I didn't do any research before I wrote my opinion. Isn't that like the most 2021 thing you've ever heard? Interestingly, that, that article was written in 2015. <laughs> Things don't change. You will never understand the golden rule until you understand the Sermon on the Mount. He is summarizing 23 points of what it looks like to live in the context of the kingdom of heaven. You can only understand it in the context of the Word of God being inspired by the Spirit of God, wanting to live in the world according to the rules of the kingdom of God. Otherwise, you look at the golden rule and you go, yeah, that doesn't work. Yes, it doesn't work if you're out for selfish motive. It doesn't work if you don't have empathy. Yeah, the author was correct, but you obviously didn't listen to the source material that would have increased your empathy. The golden rule is not a standalone idea. It's a summary of a 23-point sermon. This is why Hillel said, yeah, I can summarize it while you're standing on one foot. And did you miss what he said to the student at the end? He says, this, is, this summarizes the entire Torah. Now go and study it. And so what did the student do? He gave his entire life to following that teacher. The golden rule cannot be understood outside of its context. You can try, but you won't fully live this rule until you fully receive the grace and the love of Jesus. And so I thought that the, the, the appropriate way that we could end this service or this teaching today would be to pause and invite you to take a moment to reflect on the grace and the love of Jesus that he's poured out on your life. Now, it just so happens that we have a tradition baked into the culture of our church. We call this communion. You might refer to it as the Eucharist or coming to the Lord's table. On the way in to this room today, if you're joining us on campus, you were probably offered a cup like this. Now, at Life Church, we have what's called an open table, which means that if you would like to join us in taking communion, you don't have to be a member of our church, but we also would encourage you that you should probably be a member of Jesus' church if you want to do the thing called communion, which Jesus says, do this in order to remember what I've done for you. If you're at home, by the way, and you don't have, you weren't given one of these cups today, uh, that's all right. Uh, we believe that these elements are only items that represent something else. And so if you go and grab an element that represents uh, these items, please don't grab an element that represents a cracker and some grape juice. We have elements that represent the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus. In fact, let me just dig into that for you for just a moment as we prepare our communion. Uh, by the way, if you didn't receive one of those elements, Pastor Mark, if you're in the room, Pastor Mark is handing these elements out for us. Um, and if you're running around your house real quick and you're grabbing a donut and a cup of coffee to represent communion, that's fine. That's, that's fine. I had a friend one time take communion with a great jelly donut. It turns out Jesus is more interested in your heart than what you put in your mouth. Forgive me if it seems like I'm stalling. I'm just stalling. I'm trying not to spill this grape juice on my iPhone. There we go. I got it. <laughs> 
as we think about what Jesus has done for us, I, I want to invite you to take communion today with a cracker and some grape juice or whatever elements you have at home with the idea that we would pause and think about what Jesus has done for us so that it would push us to go and do likewise for others. <clears throat> would you take with me this cracker, this wafer, this whatever it is that you have that represents the broken body of Christ today? And I just want to invite you for a moment to think about what, what impact has the brokenness of Christ had on your life? What are the places where, because he was broken, when you deserved to be broken? What are the places where that has brought healing to you? I just want to invite you to take a moment and think on that. When you're ready, in your own way, you can say thank you to Jesus for his brokenness and his healing work. I'd invite you to eat that cracker, that wafer, that whatever it is that's representing the body of Christ. And do that to say thank you and to remember the broken body that heals the body of Christ. Jesus, there is no way around it. We are sinners. We are unworthy of your presence left to our own devices. We continually fall short of the glorious high standard of perfection. And yet, you willingly had your body broken for us. And you willingly had your blood shed for us. We thank you. I want to take another moment and invite you to think about the ways that the, the shed blood of Jesus has covered your sins. It's incredible that, that Jesus would willingly allow himself uh, to, to die so that you could live. And that when you deserved eternal separation from him, that he would willingly shed his blood. It says that our sins would be washed white as snow. I want to invite you before you drink this element that represents the blood of Jesus to reflect on the ways that his blood has covered the sins that have separated you from God. And because of his covering, you are not separated. Thank you, Jesus. When you're ready, say thank you to him in your own words and drink as a sign of remembering and honoring what he's done for you. Thank you, Lord.
If you have questions about a moment like this, we'd love to talk with you sometime about the meaning and the practice of taking communion. But I can simply say this before we move forward is that among other things, communion is an opportunity to reset our hearts. It's, it's a chance for us to, to pause and be thankful for what God has done, to, to humble our hearts before the God who gave his life for ours. So this is, Je this is how Jesus chooses to treat us, that he was broken for us. He didn't put his own comfort before ours. And that because he died and rose again, we can live. And so he challenges us to then extend that same grace to others. And so I'll say to you one more time that the summary of the entire 23-point sermon of the Sermon on the Mount is think about how you would love other people to treat you and beat them to the punch. This is the law and the prophets. May the Lord bless you in the name and the presence of Jesus with an awareness of his grace and his love for you. May you see other people the way that God sees them. May you find joy in treating others as you wish to be treated. And may you be a blessing as you practice living in God's kingdom here on earth. May you be blessed and may you be a blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.